0: So as Alex just mentioned, and prayed for for us, and with us we will be in the book of Ruth this morning. If you have a Bible with you, I'd encourage you to open it up to the book of Ruth. As I mentioned that we were going to be working through the book of Ruth, I was met with many smiles. People love the book of Ruth. We love it. I was thinking about that this week. Why do we love the book of Ruth? And I think the answer is because we love love. We love love. Ruth is a love story. It's more than that, but it's also not less than that. It is a beautiful story. It is a gentle story. It is saturated with kindness. And the book, as a whole, has this wonderful arc of turning. Turning. Emptiness turning to fullness. Famine turning to plenty, sadness turning to joy, and bitterness turning to hope. And I say this without even fear of spoilers, because it is that good of a story. And so as we study this book, we can let ourselves get lost in the rich beauty that this story is. As we do that, though, I want to encourage you to not only think of this as a story, I want you to add a little qualifier on that, that this is a true story. This is a true story. It's a story that really happened a long time ago, but it really happened. And we almost shouldn't need to mention it, but it is a helpful reminder, I think, to think of the story of Ruth as a true story because that's what it is. As the story begins, we are introduced to people, real people. We are introduced to places, real places. We are introduced to times, real times, and we're introduced to conflict, real conflict, And remembering that this is a real story should help us, I think, and encourage us even more as we come to this story, this true story, and consider what God would have for us through this wonderful short book. But that leads us to that question, what does God have for us this morning from this book? Why study it apart from its sweetness because you may think of the book of Ruth and you may be thinking, "You know, is it just a morality textbook on what it means to be committed and kind? Is it a manual for how to find a great husband? Is it a manual for how to find a great wife? Is it a manual for how to be a man like Boaz or how to be a woman like Ruth? You may have heard the book of Ruth talked about in these kinds of ways. And there are lessons here. There's, there's some of that we can actually glean out but I think that is setting the bar far too low if we read the book of Ruth with a magnifying glass like that. If we do, we fail to see how and why the book of Ruth fits in with the entire story of the Bible, the entire story of redemption, and even your story today. With too tight of a view, we fail to see that this turning arc of the book of Ruth, that I've already talked about, is a story that also foreshadows the gospel. That in the book of Ruth, we see the good news of Jesus told in terms of emptiness turning into fullness, famine turning into plenty, sadness turning into joy, and bitterness turning into hope. The book of Ruth is interesting, though, because for all of its beauty, it's terribly ordinary. We see no explicit miraculous intervention from God. We see no inspired prophetic proclamations. No one says, thus saith the Lord. We see no description of the nation of Israel, even as a whole. What do we see? Well, we see something, quite honest, very domestic and ordinary. Now, there are parts of this book that will sound strange to our 21st century ears. But in one sense, the book could be accused of being underwhelming. But here too, though, I think lies a lot of the beauty of the book of Ruth. The fact that God is actively at work throughout all of redemptive history and whether that is the dramatic rescue of an entire nation from its oppressors or in the seemingly ordinary providential work of God in the lives of his people. And so my prayer, HTC, as we unroll the book of Ruth over the next number of weeks, that we would see the tapestry in all of its beauty. We would see that this is a beautiful story, a true story, a foreshadowing of the gospel story, and a story that screams, even if in the form of a whisper at times, that we worship a big and mighty God who has been at work from the beginning of time and continues his work today. And so would you pray with me as we approach the book of Ruth? God, as we come to this short and beautiful book, would you work in each of our lives, whether this is a book and a story that we are very familiar with or if it's one that we are brand new to. Father, what we know not would you teach us. What we have not would you give us and what we are not would you make us for your glory by the power of your spirit through your word and in the name of Jesus we pray. Amen. The book of Ruth is divided up into four chapters in our English Bibles that we have today. And these chapter divisions actually do a pretty good job of dividing up the story into what I would consider four episodes. And so today, episode one, The Return. Episode one, The Return. I'm gonna read the entire chapter, chapter one, uh, out loud. And as I read Ruth chapter one this morning, I want you to remember this is God's word. This is God's word for us today. And so I will conclude uh, reading Ruth 1 by saying this is God's word. And if you believe that radical statement to be true, I would invite you to join me in saying out loud, thanks be to God. Let's hear God's word. In the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land. And a man of Bethlehem in Judah went to sojourn in the country of Moab, he and his wife and his two sons. The name of the man was Elimelech, and the name of his wife Naomi. And the names of his two sons were Malon and Kilion. They were Ephrathites from Bethlehem in Judah. They went into the country of Moab and remained there. But Elimelech, the husband of Naomi, died. And she was left with her two sons. These took Moabite wives. The name of one was Orpah and the name of the other Ruth. They lived there about ten years. And both Malon and Kilion died. So that the woman was left without her two sons and her husband. Then she arose with her daughters-in-law to return from the country of Moab. For she had heard in the fields of Moab that the Lord had visited his people and given them food. So she set out from the place where she was with her two daughters-in-law, and they went on the way to return to the land of Judah. But Naomi said to her two daughters-in-law, "'Go, return each of you to her mother's house. May the Lord deal kindly with you as you have dealt with the dead and with me. The Lord grant that you may find rest, each of you, in the house of her husband.'" And she kissed them, and they lifted up their voices and wept. And they said to her, No, we will return with you to your people. But Naomi said, Turn back, my daughters. Why will you go with me? Have I yet sons in my womb that they may become your husbands? Turn back, my daughters. Go your way, for I am too old to have a husband. Your sister-in-law has gone back to her people and her gods return after your sister-in-law. But Ruth said, Do not urge me to leave you or to return from following you. For where you go, I will go. And where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people and your God, my God. Where you die, I will die. And there I will be buried. May the Lord do so to me and more also. If anything but death parts me from you. And when Naomi saw that she was determined to go with her, she said, no more. So the two of them went on until they came to Bethlehem. And when they came to Bethlehem, the whole town was stirred because of them. And the women said, is this Naomi? She said to them, do not call me Naomi. Call me Mara, for the Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me. I went away full, and the Lord has brought me back empty. Why call me Naomi, when the Lord has testified against me, and the Almighty has brought calamity upon me? So Naomi returned, and Ruth the Moabite, her daughter-in-law, with her, who returned from the country of Moab, and they came to Bethlehem at the beginning of the barley harvest. This is God's word. Thanks be to God. Amen. See that Ruth chapter one is characterized by a turning point, a crossroads. And from within the very first few verses, we see a pretty bad situation that is faced by the surviving characters of the story. They are faced with the decision to return to Bethlehem. And so I want you to hear this. Return is probably the key phrase from Ruth chapter one. Twelve times in this chapter, the Hebrew word for return is used. And we see it translated a few different ways. But 12 times in one chapter should make us pay attention. And so as we approach this story, this chapter even, this episode in the story that focuses on a return, a crossroads, a turning point, I want you to reflect on your own life and ask yourself the question, have I ever felt stuck? Have I ever felt like I was at a crossroads? And maybe that's you here this morning. Now, Ruth chapter 1 is not a manual for decision-making, but it is a portion of Scripture where we see that a costly return to God can bring hope in our emptiness. And so that will be our big idea this morning as we read Ruth 1 and study Ruth 1. A costly turn to God brings hope in an empty world. A costly turn to God brings hope in an empty world. As we see from Ruth chapter 1, a costly turn to God does not eliminate brokenness. A costly turn to God does not promise earthly prosperity. But a costly turn to God does promise sovereign provision. And we will work through those statements slower and more methodical. But our first point becomes very clear as we look at the first few verses of the book of Ruth. And that thread carries right through to the end of the chapter. And so our first point is a costly turn to God does not eliminate brokenness. We've considered the topic of lament a number of times here at Heritage Grace recently, especially as over uh, our short life so far as a church. We have worked through, to this point, the first 14 Psalms, and many times we have acknowledged that living in a world that is broken and distorted brings brokenness and distortion. And look with me at the first few words of the book of Ruth. In the days when the judges ruled. We get a clue right away to the overall backdrop of the book of Ruth. As pleasant as this book gets, as pleasant as the story gets, it doesn't start pleasant. In the days when the judges ruled. These were not great days for God's people. The very last verse of the book of Judges gives us a pretty clear synopsis of the spiral that was the bad leadership and unfaithfulness of the nation of Israel. Uh, that sets the stage for the book of Ruth. And so in your Bibles, turn back one page or look to the page over the very last verse in the book of Judges. says, In those days, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. So, Even as we start the book of Ruth, we get this dark canvas that is being worked on. And there's just this lingering hope of better days to come. But the question is, even you know, five or six words into the book of Ruth, will those days come? Days where instead of no king, there might be a king who trusts God and leads faithfully. And instead of days where everyone was doing what was right in their own lives, longing for uh, a day when God's people would be grounded and guided by God's word, That's the hope that we get even a few words into the book of Ruth. And so put a pin in that hope because this is the first major clue in answering the question, why is the book of Ruth even in the Bible? A dark room is the perfect place for a bright light of hope to shine through. And so this is where we begin, a dark room. And not just when the judges ruled, we see circumstantially as well, Famine, in verse one. There's a shortage of food in Bethlehem. There's a level of irony here is Bethlehem, the name literally means house of bread or place of food. But again, circumstantially bleak. And that's the bleak scene we start from. The days when the judges ruled and that there's no food in the place of food. We are introduced here to a man and his wife and his two sons. We get the little house. On the prairie of the Old Testament. Seems like that's the story we're getting right here, but then things take a pretty dark turn. Because we have Elimelech, who for about six seconds we think might be the main character of the book. He leads his family out of their homeland. And they go to Moab to find food. And of course, we don't know exactly how long, but eventually Elimelech tragically dies. We get no explicit clues in the first few verses of Ruth uh, whether Elimelech did the right thing or not in leading his family away from God's people and God's promised land. In general, as we read the Bible, we see that leaving the fold of God is leading your family away in that way is not wise. We see that pattern throughout Scripture, but it's not forbidden. And Moab and Israel had a pretty complicated past which would have at least given the original readers of this book reason to say, hmm, okay, Elimelech, he's he's doing his thing. But I would suggest it would be a wrong turn to say that we can be confident that Elimelech dies here as a punishment for leaving Bethlehem. God's plans are much bigger, I would suggest, than that. And I think we'll see that as we read this book that this sojourning in the land of Moab sets the stage for the eventual return that we'll see dominate the rest of the chapter and then what comes out of that dominating the rest of the book. And so Elimelech's death here is a tragedy, but if we kind of stop after those first few verses, we might be saying, hey, you know what? They're okay. At least their family will continue on. He had two sons. Having sons in those days was incredibly important. They were able to carry on the name and the future of the family. And so these sons, we see in verse 4, get married to Moabite women. Again, not a prohibition, but certainly not typical for an Israelite. And so again, to an Israelite ear, maybe even concerning. But then we get the real heavy, weighty, burdensome tragedy that both sons die and both sons die childless. Childless. It's hard to put ourselves in the shoes of these surviving characters and understand the bleakness of the situation we see here. Even our 21st century ears, again, aren't trained to acknowledge how bad the situation really is for them. We need to understand and accept that in these times, to be without the protection and provision of a man was bad news for a lot of reasons. Of course, there's societal implications. There's a ceiling on what could be done by three childless widows. But the looming situation that hangs over these first verses of the book of Ruth is the threat of extinction of their family line. That's the bleakness that's painted. Not just the fact that the judges, you know, this is in the time when the judges ruled. Not just because there's a famine. And they, Not just because they had to leave God's people and God's land. But also now their family line might be extinguished it's helpful to remind ourselves that hope for Old Testament Israelites was wrapped up in the covenant promises of God. These are like the checkpoints that along the way, as we work through the Old Testament, that give a thread of hope for God's people, of how God commits to keep his people. In these Old Covenant days, these promises were seen in the form of land and family blessing. That God would make his people a great nation. This is not simply just material prosperity, but close fellowship and relationship with God, a nearness. And God's promises from the very beginning, even as humanity sinned and rebelled, all these promises were wrapped up in that God would make a way for his people to be made right with him, to restore a right relationship with him. And these old covenant promises, all these promises, all these checkpoints along the way, we see eventually fulfilled and perfectly fulfilled in Jesus Christ when the new covenant was inaugurated. No longer the old covenant, now the new covenant when God would send his own son into the world, God in the flesh to redeem humanity, to live a sinless life, to die the death that humanity deserved for our rebellion he came to pay the debt for all of our sin and to rise from the dead, demonstrating that that debt was paid in full for all who would turn from their sin and trust in Christ for salvation. And as we think about Naomi and Orpah and Ruth, they are in a bad spot in view of these old covenant promises. They are outside the land of promise and they face the potential threat of the end of their family line. And so in this break in the story, we see that they are in a pretty hopeless state. They are far from God and therefore far from hope. So friend, this morning, where do you find yourself today? These three widows find themselves far from the old covenant promises of God. Are you this morning far from the new covenant promises of God Found in Christ. As we think of the old covenant promises fulfilled in Christ, it's like we have a textbook with the answers in the back. Remember this, everybody? I don't know if it's still a thing, but when the the answers are in the back of the textbook. And in this case, it's not cheating to look. Jesus himself, when he's teaching his disciples how to read the Bible, he's saying, you know, look. He 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 opens up the old testament. The writings of Moses, the, the prophets, the, he, and he points to himself. He says, these things were testifying about me. And so for us this morning, this is important to think about, that even though this story is happening long before when Jesus comes onto the scene as a man on earth, we can consider the situation that Ruth and Orpah are in, we consider the situation that Naomi's in, and we could ask the question on ourselves and say, am I more like Ruth and Orpah right now? Maybe I've never known, maybe today is the first day I'm hearing about the hope that is found in the gospel. Maybe you are here and you're more like Naomi. You know the promise and you know the hope of the gospel, but you know that you are far away from that hope. You know that the bread of life, God's word is absent and therefore you find yourself in a spiritual famine. Friend, for every single one of us, the hope that we have this morning is the gospel. The hope for all of us is that by turning from our sin and trusting in Christ, we can have salvation. We can be counted as righteous because of Christ's righteousness. And if you have slid away from that truth, turn back to that hope that is Christ. And as we look at Naomi and eventually Ruth, Their husbands, even in their costly turn that they make to go back to Bethlehem, their husbands don't all of a sudden come back. The situation is still bad for them. This is a helpful reminder for all of us that even a costly turn to God does not eliminate the brokenness of the world. For these women, Jesus coming as a man to redeem humanity was still a long way off. But in the bleakness of the situation that these women faced, They were at a crossroads where all roads seemed to point to nowhere. But even when all the options looked bleak, all the options looked bad, there was a glimmer of hope returning to God. And more than simply food that they could find back in Bethlehem, we'll see that by returning to God in this way, it gave them and us far more than simply food. And so that brings us to our second point. A costly return to God does not promise earthly prosperity. Let's pick up in verse 6 of Ruth 1. Then she arose with her daughters-in-law to return from the country of Moab. For she had heard in the fields of Moab that the Lord had visited his people and given them food. So she set out from the place where she was with her two daughters-in-law, and they went on the way to return to the land of Judah." And so, even with the hope that existed here, Naomi wonders if there is more hope for her daughters in law than rather than going to Bethlehem to stay in Moab. And so, in verses 8 and 9, she tells them to return to their Moabite families. And she prays a blessing on them. She, she prays that God would bless them in ways that are similar to the ways to the, that she, her daughters in law, have loved her, that they would be demonstrated kindness. But we saw in verse 10 that they say no. Verse 10, they say, said to her, no, we will return with you to your people. That love that they demonstrate to their mother-in-law is on display. But Naomi, she's, she won't take it at that point. She, she steps it up. She emphasizes the situation, how, how bad it really is, even circumstantially. In verses 12 and 13, she describes the impossibility of the prospects for them. What does she say? She says, I'm too old to be married. It says, even if I was married today, and even if I were to get pregnant tonight, would I have a son, let alone two? And even if I had two sons, would you wait until they were old enough to marry you? And at least implicit in that, the fact that these uh, Orpah and Ruth were married and it says they lived there about 10 years, implicit in the fact that even if they were to wait for these uh, hypothetical, impossible sons to be born, that then they would be too old to have their own children. And so even if all the things lined up, the hopelessness still is palpable as we hear Naomi's words. And so what do they do? They weep together. Orpah kisses her mother-in-law and turns back, but Ruth clings tightly. In this moment, she is making a costly decision. But again, Naomi's not done. She pleads with her. She says, see, your sister-in-law went back. You should too. But what does Ruth say? When Ruth faces this final appeal from Naomi to return to her people and her God, she emphatically refuses. She demonstrates amazing, amazing and costly commitment to Naomi and to God. And this really is a costly devotion. And I mean, we could speculate and wonder all that was going through uh, the different characters' minds. We don't know how old Naomi was, but one could even accuse Ruth of thinking, you know, I'll stay with Naomi, and then when she dies, I'm off the hook. I can kind of make my own way. And that still would be very kind, very generous, very loyal. But Ruth doesn't stop there. She says, I will be with you for the rest of your life. Even where you die, I will die. And if I leave you, may the Lord do to me even worse than what's currently facing you, Naomi. That is costly commitment. And it's this costly turn that Ruth makes that is potentially signing her up for just a lot of life that is just gonna be hard, a lifetime of hardship. There is not only no guarantee of earthly prosperity, but not even a lot of hope of any prosperity by making this Costly decision. But what does she do? She counts the cost. She won't abandon Naomi. Her love is deeper than emotion or obligatory commitment. She is demonstrating steadfast love, a word that we've considered multiple times, hesed. It's translated as dealing kindly in verse 8. It's the first time of many times that we'll see this word come up through the book of Ruth. And it's that steadfast love, it's that kind dealing that Naomi has applauded her for demonstrating already and what she wishes uh, that God would show Ruth and Orpah. And so as we think about this deep love, this kind of deep, non-negotiable, unconditional, covenantal love, that is a key word through the Bible. It's a key theme and particularly a thread as we work through this book of Ruth. And we see here that Ruth does not only swear allegiance to Naomi, but more specifically and significantly, she swears allegiance to God. This is a costly vertical and horizontal commitment. As we see, as we look from our vantage point back through the New Testament into this story, the New Testament paints a similar costly commitment as we consider what it means to be a Christian It's a costly love for Christ, a vertical cost, and a costly love of Christ's people, the church, a horizontal love and a horizontal cost. And just like these costly commitments that Ruth makes, to be a Christian and commit yourself fully to Christ and to fellow Christians in the church is not a ticket for smooth sailing. It's not a ticket to your best life now. To be a Christian does not solve all of your earthly problems And if you hear that message, friend, that is the opposite picture of what it means to follow Christ. When Jesus himself talks about what it means to be his disciple, he says you need to renounce all that you have and follow him. That's what we just sang about in that new song. I'll trade my treasure, all my rewards, Jesus, to know you and know you more. And As we'll end our service in a few minutes, we'll sing the song, Jesus, I my cross have taken. That's the metaphor Jesus gives when he talks about what it means to follow him, to take up your cross and follow him. And you may be thinking right now, Aaron, you are a terrible salesman. Well, friend, I'm not selling anything. But the costly decision to follow Christ is the best decision you could ever make in the world because it does solve the biggest problem that we all face, the sin that separates us from God But what does it mean? It is costly. It means dying to your old self. That is the path of the Christian life. Dying to spiritual death so that you may find life. I don't know if we have any canoe lovers in the crowd here. If you are, you're familiar with the J stroke. When you're paddling and you make a little J with your paddle. The first time someone tried to explain the J stroke to me, I thought, what are you talking about? That makes no sense to me. If I want to go that way, I'm going to push the water that way. But the J-stroke is necessary to help keep the, the canoe going in the right direction. It helps keep the canoe tracking in a straight line. And you'll hear the false gospels of the world either say, don't paddle at all, metaphorically, or paddle like crazy. And so to not paddle at all, you'd be left floating in the middle of the lake. And to paddle like crazy, trying to earn your salvation, you'll be in the middle of the lake still, but just going in circles. And so the curve of the Christian life is dying to self so that you might find life. It's the J-curve of the Christian life. It sounds counterintuitive that it would cost everything to gain everything in in a strange kind of paradox type of way. But the reason that's possible is because Jesus too died so that we might find life. That's the J-curve of his ministry in life. And that's our hope that we find in the gospel. And so that's the pattern that we see of discipleship. It's costly, it's weighty, but it is glorious. You can't sort of be a Christian. To follow Christ is to be redeemed completely by God's work, that he would change your heart, that you can't even change it yourself, and that that would only be evidenced by following Jesus completely knowing that the costliness does not eliminate the brokenness of our world, knowing that the costliness does not guarantee earthly prosperity. It doesn't even promise earthly prosperity, but it promises so much more. And that's where we find ourselves at the end of this chapter, feeling that tension, but seeing that there's a glimmer of hope, where we get to our third and final point, that a costly turn to God does promise sovereign provision couple big words there, but important words. A costly turn to God does promise sovereign provision. Ruth is all in here. She's all in on this, even at a great cost to herself. And of course, we can't know everything that's going on in her mind, but it is confidence inspiring to see this kind of commitment, to see this kind of love, both for Naomi and for her God. And so the end of the chapter Uh, It comes to a close. They arrive in Bethlehem. The whole town is stirred up. Again, it'd be interesting to speculate. Why are they stirred up? Are they thinking, oh man, they were shocked to hear that is horrible what's happened to Naomi. Her husband and sons have died. Maybe they were shocked to see that Naomi came back with a foreign daughter-in-law. That's, you know, something. Uh, Maybe it's a combination of both of these. Maybe they are just happy to see Naomi. Maybe they're like, oh, Naomi's back, right? But what do we see in verses 19-19? And 20. And so the two of them went on until they came to Bethlehem. And when they came to Bethlehem, the whole town was stirred because of them. And the women said, is this Naomi? She said to them, do not call me Naomi. Call me Mara, for the Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me. You see here the name Naomi means pleasant. Your Bibles may have that in a little footnote. And the name Mara means bitter. And so it's almost like her name triggered her to again be made aware and therefore to make others aware of the dark place that she is. Say, hey, look, it's Naomi. Is that pleasant? Don't call me pleasant. Call me bitter because the Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me. Those are hard words to hear, hard words to think about, but maybe familiar words even to your own ears. Naomi isn't pulling punches. She is a broken woman with a broken life. We considered some of these raw emotions just recently at Easter. We went through Psalm chapter 13. The first three verses are heavy. They feel weighty. How does the psalmist start? How long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? How long must I take counsel in my soul and have sorrow in my heart all the day? How long shall my enemy be exalted over me? Consider and answer me, O Lord, my God. Light up my eyes, lest I sleep the sleep of death. Think about those words. Think about the weightiness of of what the psalmist is saying there and think about what Naomi is saying in this moment. These are real, raw emotions and even Naomi takes it up a level. She's not saying just how long. She's saying he has dealt bitterly with me. But what did we consider as we went through Psalm 13? Not once does the psalmist undermine God's authority Not once does the psalmist undermine God's sovereignty. And Naomi, even in her intense grief that she is feeling in this moment, she does refer to God as the Almighty, a name used for God to emphasize his sovereignty and his power. And then she also uses the name the Lord in all caps in our Bibles, which refers to the name Yahweh, God's personal covenant name. And so even though she is making A painful statement in verse 21 that that she went away feeling full, but Yahweh has brought her back empty. She makes it clear that even in all of her losses, even in all of her emptiness, the Lord did bring her back. And so she too, like Ruth, has made a costly turn to God. Even if she isn't feeling it in this moment, there is hope in God's sovereign provision. God is good, and there may be seasons, friend, where you even doubt it, but he is good. It is mysterious and hard to grapple with this truth, whether we are in seasons of peace or in seasons of pain, but God is sovereign. He is always and absolutely in control. John Piper says, God is doing 10,000 things, and we may be aware of three of them. This costly turn to God from both Ruth and Naomi rests completely in God's sovereign control. What other options do they have? Honestly, they don't have any other options. They cannot trust in themselves. All that they had, all that they felt they had, when Ruth, uh, Naomi left, she said, I went away full. She had all of her chips pushed in on that, on her situation, on her circumstances, on her family, on whatever it was, and it's all gone, she has come back empty. The Lord has brought her back empty. And so they have no choice but trusting in God. But she forgets in that moment when she says, I came back empty. She forgets. She still has Ruth, who has demonstrated amazing love to her already. And she has her God, who is providentially working in ways that are beyond the sea of grief that she feels like she is drowning in right now. But it is in this sea, this bottom of the barrel experience where Ruth and Naomi can find grace. Tim Keller, who's written uh, plenty on suffering, says it's in the dark times that we can learn the most about the grace of God. And even in uh, his most recent cancer battle that he's going through right now, he says he's learned 10 times more about the grace of God in the dark. And even now, as we don't finish the book of Ruth this morning, we wait and we rest in the strange mercy that God demonstrates to Ruth and Naomi And in turn, to all of his people through this tragedy. I don't normally leave teasers in sermons, but these next few weeks we will unpack and see just how big of a story God is working on, just how big of a plan he has for Naomi and Ruth, for the nation of Israel, and for us today. But what about us today, right now? What about you this morning? What about the dark places that you find yourself in this morning? Friend, no matter who you are, trust God, even in the dark. Again, first of all, if you don't know Christ, turn to him, bottom of the barrel or not. Don't turn to him because of a hope that the tough circumstances will just vanish. Don't turn to him on the basis of earthly prosperity, but just turn to him, period. It will be costly, but he is good. There is a promise of sovereign provision. How do we do that? How does God work this sovereign provision in our lives even if our circumstances don't get better that we might see? Friend, the most glorious provision that God gives us is the gift of his son and his righteousness. We find ourselves in the brokenness of this world because of our sin. Sin hangs over us as the just punishment that we deserve. But do you know what Jesus says? He says, I'll take this one. I'll take his place, I'll take her place because I love him, because I love her. Jesus died so that you might live. Turn from your sin and trust in Christ. Give him your all and rest that through that costly turn you might find a truly abundant life through the brokenness. Give up chasing earthly prosperity and find spiritual prosperity. And if you are here this morning and you know the hope of the gospel, maybe you even grew up in church and you find yourself in a proverbial Moab or in a famine, you feel like God is far away and if you're really honest with yourself, you know that you did some wandering. Friend, come home. Like the prodigal son, say to God, Father, I've sinned and been too far away from you and even though I bring nothing to the table, even though I'm not even be Worthy to be called your child. Not even a servant. Remember that he sees you. And he feels compassion. He not only will let you run to him. Which is crazy to think about. That we could go to God. The creator and sustainer of the universe. In all of our failures. and all of our flaws. But so much More radical than that is the fact that he would come to us, that he sent his own son to die for you because he knew that you couldn't do enough. He knew that you couldn't be good enough. He knew that you couldn't get your act together enough to get to him. And so what did he do? He came to us. This is the beauty and the hope of the gospel for every single person in this room. We all need this hope whether you have always been far away like Ruth, whether you find yourself backsliding and far away like Naomi, or whether you find yourself in the safe embrace of your father this morning, we don't move past the gospel. Christ is our hope in life and death from beginning to end. And so count the cost. Follow Jesus with all that you have. Know that this isn't a ticket to fixing the circumstances of your life. Know that this isn't a ticket to material or situational prosperity. But what Christ has done for you is make a way for you to come home to your Father who loves you more than you could ever know, even in your brokenness, even in your failed attempts at gaining prosperity. Come home. Count the cost. Follow Christ. Let's pray.